Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is 1 Peter 1, 13 through 2, verse 10. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a new stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Kids are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us remain seated. My name is Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace. And um, so here's the, th- here's the deal. Yesterday, uh, my five-year-old son fractured his arm. I know. And my, I, yeah, I, I was there. And, um, and my, my wife isn't, she's gone for the weekend, of course. Because that's, because that's when you want things to happen. Cause, and I'm like, I'm a cliche. I, I, that happened to me, right? Mom's away, and then all of a sudden my son's, he fractures his arm. So we, were, uh, we went to the ER last night, and we were there quite late. And um, I'm, I'm going to make it through this story. Because it's actually about more than my son fracturing his arm. And you're also thinking, man, Daniel can't go through a whole thing without crying. <laughs> and yes, you're right. Um, but so we were, we were in the ER and we were kind of waiting for a while, as you do, at Long Beach Memorial. And um, got some x-rays and the, even the x-ray technician was like, oh, it's looking good. I don't see, you know, I don't see anything. But the doctors will let you know. And so I'm like, that's awesome feeling great about this, and Asher's kind of stoked on it. He's, he, he's uh, obviously terrified. So we kind of, we go in, we, we're triaged, then we go into the room, and we're waiting there for a while, and somebody next to us is making noises, and Asher's really scared about what's going on, and the doctor comes in and, and says, you know, basically that she's like going into this long thing of like, oh yes, you hurt your arm, it's okay, it's going to be okay, and I'm thinking, oh awesome. She's like, yeah, it's a buckle fracture. And I'm like, oh, so it's broken. She's like, yes, it's broken. And so Asher's um, obviously really sad. And, he, and so he looks at me, he's like, I'm going to need a cast. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to need a cast. And, but they splinted it up last, yesterday. And, and so we were talking about this. And I was like, dude, like, this means you're not going to be able to play baseball, you know, t-ball, which is his life right now, because I'm a good dad. And... Uh, <laughs> and and so he, you know, he's like super sad, and he's, he, and, and I just was like, I was super sad for him, and I had so much compassion for, for what he was feeling. So we got done, we went home, and I put him in bed, and, um, and then all of these stories started flashing through my mind of, of people here, and of like the, the potential amount of stories in terms of suffering um, that, that are present, right? Like, uh, I think of our friends, the Stumps, who are, going to, who are coming on a year of acknowledging the death of their son. I think of, of, of people who, who've died of cancer uh, this last year, Danielle Montiel. I was thinking of people right now who are struggling with um, breast cancer. I was thinking of friends who's, who in terms of their parents, like, waiting to hear this call that could potentially be really bad news for them, or friends who, who have a child who aren't sure if they're going to be able to keep him uh, for, for long term. I just, all of these stories of, like, of potential suffering, right, that, that are, or just sadness, were, were running through my brain because I couldn't sleep. And, and then I thought, when I was here this morning, I was like, man, I just, I... I don't know what our view of God is, but I think God is much better than I am. Uh, and, and I just was like, 
wow, God's compassionate. Like, God feels your suffering or your loss, and he's, he's actually with you in it. Um, and so I don't know how you think of God and what your picture of God is this morning and what you've come in with, but just that idea of, like, God knows you and whatever you're dealing with and the suffering and the sadness that you have, like, God looks upon you and, and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. It sucks. And, but I love you and I'm here. And so I don't know, I just felt like I needed to share that. Um, and so I hope this morning and in whatever way you can, like, maybe you feel or you experience, like, the, the living presence of God just near you in your sadness or in your suffering, even in your joy um, and, and what's good. So that's my prayer for you. I'm going to pray that now and we'll um, talk about First Peter. Father, I just keep thinking of, of that verse where Jesus is talking about how, well, if you are an earthly father, would you give your son a stone if they ask for bread, and how much better than is your heavenly Father? And, 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 and I do think of that this morning, that how much better are you, our heavenly Father, the God who is so compassionate, who moves toward us in our lives where we are. And I pray, as I just think about all the stories that I'm aware of here, all the stories that I'm not aware of, um, they we need you. We need you with us. We need you present to us. I trust and believe that you are. And so help us to experience that nearness this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so we started a series in, in 1 Peter last week. And it's, there's a series of, of four different sermons through this book in 1 Peter. And so Peter, right, one of the disciples uh, who knew Jesus, also an apostle, and suggested that this letter that Peter is writing to this group of churches um, in Asia Minor, and so this collection of churches who are actually undergoing some sort of hostility, persecution, suffering, uh, and under uh, Roman occupation and rule. And so Peter is writing them this letter really to, with the pastoral task of naming them, reminding them of who they are, and why it is they can have hope. In, in what um, God wants to do or is doing and will do. And so we're going through First Peter really as an opportunity to kind of ask those types of questions. What does it mean to have hope? What does it mean to be a community who's named well by God? And then what does that mean in that naming? How do we think about our vocation and what we're called to be and to do as a community? And so last week we talked about First Peter 1, um, uh, verses 1 through 12, and I suggested that that is where Peter is naming who these churches are, what is true of them. And some of the things I said, that he named them first as, as elect exiles, really connecting them to the story of Israel, as people who are chosen by God for a specific purpose, but also in some ways live a life of exile, as they're constantly waiting, right, to enter into the land, um, and they feel displaced and kind of wandering. And so Peter is connecting these churches to Israel, saying, you know, the, the story that God has begun, the story of salvation that really begins in creation and ends in new creation, um, and involves Israel and, and Jesus and the church, 
that, that these people, these churches are connected to that larger story, really the story of God's salvation. And to be elect exiles, to be chosen by God, means that they're a part of a new family, they have a new identity, and they have a new hope. And then that also gives them a new vocation. And some of the ways that he names them, he says that they, are, that they have a new birth, right? They've been born again into a living hope. They have an inheritance. They're guarded by God's power and that they're, they're caught up in the story of salvation. And I was talking to my friend Joel Lube after last weekend, um, or after last Sunday, I took him home, and he was talking about First Peter a little bit, and he said, you know, um, and the Lubes have, have fostered children, and he was saying that in their preparation for foster care that the people um, that, who are doing the, um, what do you call those things? Home study? No, but the where you're, there's something. There's like this presentation, these trainings, trainings. So, um, so that he was saying that in these trainings, they, they were saying that really when kids are kind of displaced from a home, right, that, that what they need, because what a home provides and what they don't have, is they, they need identity and they need security. And so he was giving me these words, and he was, he was thinking about First Peter in light of these two words, and I was and he was saying that this is what he, he sees in First Peter of what Peter's doing. That he's providing these people a sense of identity. But then he's also saying that there's a sense of security. There's a sense of security in their identity because of the one who is naming them, which, who is God, right? But then also because God himself gives his inheritance to these people. And he gives them salvation. Uh, and so I was like, wow, those are really helpful words for me as I think about going through this book, this idea of identity and security. And we will see Peter doing that constantly, reminding them who they are, and then also rem- telling them why they can be secure in who they are. And I just really love that. Uh, and, and because all of this is true, right, what Peter is saying, because of the hope that they have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's going to bring us into um, the passage for today. And what Peter is going to do, now that the pe- these people have a new identity, he's going to say, okay, here's what's true of you. Now this is what it means. Because of who you are, you have a new vocation. You have a family vocation. As the people of God, of God who've been brought together, you are called then to live in a certain type of way. And here's some of the things that Peter is going to describe. If you can turn in your Bibles to First Peter, uh, and we're going to look at the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2, and that's on page 1014. I'm just going to kind of walk through the, the text a little bit to, to show um, the things that Peter is calling these people to, and then I'll offer some observations of what that might mean for us today. So starting in verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, this uh, one New Testament scholar says, basically what Peter is doing, he's like, okay, so you're going to get up and add it. Like, you need to get up and you're going to be doing this. But I really think this language right here is really fascinating because there's almost like this setup in terms of when you think of, okay, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. It almost seems like um, combat language. Like, get ready. Right? Like, you need to get ready. And which kind of makes sense, given the context of hostility and persecution that these people are undergoing. But what they're called to do is anything but, like, physical combat. And actually, what, what Peter is going to call them to do is actually he's going to show them how they're to be in relationship 
to one another and to the world. That they're, that they're being sober-minded, they're preparing their minds for action is going to take on a certain form. And here are some of the things that he's going to do. And I'm just going to kind of name some things through the text. And you can kind of let your eyes fall over the text. So in, in, verse, for, in verse 13, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he said to be obedient. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In verse 15, he says you are to be holy. Because God is holy. Now, holiness, this idea of, of, being, of being set apart because God was other. God was, was a God who, who distanced himself from evil. And for God to be holy in the Old Testament, specifically, also meant a certain level of, of justice. And so for people, for God to name people, or for Peter to name these people that they are to be holy, like God is, is holy, they are to love the things that God himself loves. And if you were to look at Micah, right, what are some of the things that, that, that these people are supposed to do? They are to, to live humbly and gently and love justice and walk with their God. This sense of, of holiness, of being set apart for God. And then in verse 17, he says you are to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the, <clears throat> throughout the time of your exile. Now that's an interesting phrase, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So why conduct yourselves with fear? Well, I think in this, I think the, the people in these churches were operating out of fear. I mean, they're undergoing persecution. They're undergoing suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. So, of course, they would be afraid of the Roman Empire. But Peter is sort of flipping and says, don't be afraid of the wrong thing. Conduct yourselves with fear before God because God is the one who ultimately can judge you. And guess what? You have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. What is there to fear? I mean, I, I, I think of how much of our lives we operate out of fearing the wrong things. I do. Afraid of, of what? Of not, of not having enough, right? Not being enough. And so all of a sudden I have these fears and I live life in reference to these fears. And so Peter is saying, don't live life in reference to fearing the wrong thing. Fear God. He is the one whose judgment ultimately matters. But your fate is already sealed because of the precious blood of Christ. Then as he continues to go on, if you look at verse 122, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Now, isn't that fascinating? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, how would you end, if, in terms of your own, how you, all of the different knowledge of your own upbringing in Christianity, or your maybe just beginning understanding of Christianity, how would you finish that? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, 
Would you end it with, for a sincere brotherly love, as if all of the things that, that all of that God has done is to make it possible for us to have a sincere brotherly love? I mean, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And yet I often fill it in with all of these other things, of things I should do and I should be for God. No, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That what God has made possible in Jesus is for us to love one another sincerely from a pure heart. That's a beautiful thing that God has made possible. And that is what this, this, you, us, are all about. Then he says to put away certain things. If you go to chapter 2, put away then all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So love one another and put, put away all of the things that compromise relationship. Right? Malice. This desire to do good. Deceit. Right? Self-protection. To lie. Hypocrisy. To be something other than who you are. Envy. Not simply to want what another person has, but to want the other person not to have that. That really is what envy is. That you look at what somebody has, and you just wish they didn't have it. And then slander. Tearing somebody down. So love one another with a pure heart, and put away all of the things that compromise relationship. And, it, and I was thinking about why name these things. And I'm still not certain... I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I mean, I'm not right now. Don't raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you. But uh, at some point, it'd be really interesting to just have that conversation. Why malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? I mean, certainly in a context in which there's a lot of fear, I I wonder if these are some of the things that that perhaps are most easy to go to when you're fearful. Right? When when you're fearing something, you do want to deceive others. You do want to slander. You do, you do have envy because it, there's just not enough or somebody has too much of something or, again, you're going to self-protect. I'm just really, it's so fascinating to me that these are the things that Peter suggests to put away that might get in the way of brotherly love. And then he says in verse 2-2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And some... Um, Translations, it's long for the, the pure spiritual milk of the word. And so is that the Bible, or is that, is that um, the, the teachings of God that were handed down to them? Yes, I think, it, I think it includes that, but I also think of the New Testament idea of word, right, which is Jesus, um, that John 1, 1, or John 1 says that, that he is the word. And so longing both for the teachings that have been handed down to them, but also long for the word of Christ, the very life and sustenance of who we're to be. And and I think that 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 is, as a community, is supposed to define us because we need to be a community who longs after the risen Christ, who longs after the word of Jesus, that word of assurance, that word of Jesus who who says, you are my friends, the word of Jesus who, who has shown us through his life, death, and resurrection that he will give nothing less than all he has to give. I mean, long 
for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's a rem- I love the beginning of chapter 2. And so there's all these things that, that Peter is at the end of chapter 1, um, in the beginning of chapter 2, saying, okay, here's, here's what you are to do. I've named you well. Now here is what you are to be and to do as a community. And Peter will, will continue to go on um, in this section as we go into um, verse, verse 10, and, and he will begin to connect it to Jesus. Because what, this new family that's been brought around is actually a family that's connected to Jesus. And so he uses language, if you continue to go down, like um, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This new household that's being, that's, that finds its foundation in Jesus is to be built up continually around Jesus. That we, as God's people, according to Peter, are to be the living representatives of Jesus that we are to embody that Jesus for one another and for the world. Again, continual vocational language that Peter is using. This is, what, this is who you are. This is what you're called to be. And again, if you, when you go through again, which I hope you do, um, verses 13 through 2.10, you read it again. Everything that Peter says they are to do is always connected to something that's already true of them. I mean, it's really remarkable how Peter, how Peter does this. But really, the text is moving toward this section, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For Peter, this sums up the vocation of the Christian life. This is Christian life. This is what we are to be as a church, that we are a chosen race, a group of people called out by God for the purpose of being a royal priesthood. This is like Old Testament language, this idea of priesthood. This is temple language. For the temple in the Old Testament was the presence of God on earth. And the priests were people who helped to mediate that presence in the community of people. And in the world, we, my friends, are a royal priesthood called to be the presence of God in the world. By the power of the Spirit, that's actually possible. We are the ones who make, who make it possible for people to understand the truths about God, the person of Jesus. We can, we can talk about Jesus and we can talk about God all day long. But unless we are the people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, who embodies who God is to the world, it won't make sense. It won't be intelligible. Stanley Hauerwas says this, 
For I take it to be crucial that Christians must live in a manner that their lives are unintelligible, that they don't make sense if the God we worship in Jesus Christ does not exist. We are to live lives in such a way that our lives shouldn't make sense if God doesn't exist. And he continues to say, and Christianity doesn't make sense or is unintelligible without witnesses, without people whose practices exhibit their committed assent to our particular way of structuring the whole. And by that he's saying, you know, our lives aren't to make sense if God doesn't exist. And Christianity won't make sense to the watching world if we aren't the witnesses who are actually committed to a way of being that reflects who God is in the world. So we have a job to do. Like, we have a job to do. We have been called out by God. I mean, do you think of yourselves? Do we think of ourselves? I'm not talking individually. I'm talking about Grace Long Beach as a group of people who have been called out by God to be a chosen race and a royal priesthood to bear witness to God and his love in the world. I mean, that is the work that we have to do. That is what we are called to do. Something has happened in Jesus. He's died, and God has raised him from the dead. And as a community, we are to embody and bear witness to to the fact that that is true. So the question is, because our lives together are telling a story about God, what are our lives Or what story are our lives telling? What picture of God are we giving to the world? Malcolm Gladwell, an author, he wrote things like The Tipping Point and... um, What else did he write? What was that? I was going to reference that one. Um, but blink, but yeah, he wrote a book called David and Goliath. And it's it's this... The book is is how is it that, that... some of, of what could be perceived as weaknesses actually become um, a person's or a community's strength. And I don't really want to talk about the book so much as I want to talk about Malcolm Gladwell, because in many interviews, he's actually referenced the writing of this book as his journey back to faith. Because he grew up in, in a, uh, a Mennonite Anabaptist family and believed in God, and he said he kind of took his own path and kind of walked away from God. And through writing this book, found his way back in. And one of the, one of the main reasons why he kind of rediscovered faith through writing this book was, be, was because of this family, this Mennonite family in Canada, whose, whose daughter was murdered. And he came across this family and, and their desire to want to know the murderer in order, well, I just need to read it, because honestly, it's crazy. I don't understand it, how this is possible. So he says he went to Winnipeg to visit a woman named Wilma Dirksen, and it was 30 years ago that the Dirksons experienced every parent's worst nightmare. Their daughter, Candace, was abducted and murdered. And he said he was amazed by something that Wilma said at the time. She said, we would like to know who the person or persons are that murdered our daughter. So we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. 
And this woman, Wilma, continues to say, and I can't say, and this is really important, I can't say at this point, I forgive this person. And Gladwell says that it was here that it was really fascinating. Because it's not like Wilma, right? I mean, how do you do that? Like, some, like this crazy thing happens to you and you forgive the person who did that. Like, again, I don't know how that happens. And she wasn't even at that point yet. And that wasn't what um, Gladwell hung on to. He says the stress was on the phrase, at this point. See, she said, I can't at this point forgive this person. And he said, I wanted to know where the Dirksons found the strength to say those things. Where do two people find the power to forgive in a moment like that? And he said, I've always believed in God. I have grasped the logic of Christian faith. But what I've had a hard time seeing is God's power. Now, it wasn't in their actual forgiving of the person that Gladwell's faith was kind of thrown for a loop and perhaps reignited. It was the possibility that the story that the Dirksons were connected to, the story of Jesus and called to forgive, that made it possible that forgiveness could actually happen one day. That somehow the Christian story, right, the person of Jesus and and how they've identified themselves with Jesus would make the idea of forgiveness a legitimate possibility. And he says, I don't know what to do with that. I cannot reconcile that any other way than that is the power of God at work in these people's lives. And so through writing this book and then through that encounter and through meeting this woman, Malcolm Gladwell has come back to faith. Which is an incredible story. Because these people embodied, made, put flesh and blood on the person of Jesus and the forgiveness that's offered. And so how we live our lives This is where I'm going to close. How we live our lives tells something, tells the world something about God. How we live our lives tells the world something about this Jesus who lived and died and rose again. And somehow, the Christian story, the person of Jesus, makes it possible for instead of self-protection, it makes it possible for us to tell the truth. Instead of envy towards another person, it makes it possible for us to encourage and to praise another. Instead of slander, it makes possible the ability to perhaps shut our mouth or speak words of life. When we take a meal to a person who's hurting or broken or because they need something, when we show compassion to another human being for whatever reason, when we care for another who seems to be on, like, the end of themselves. When we forgive another person and we move toward reconciliation where relationship has been broken, like, here's what you need to know. Those things actually tell the world about the salvation of God that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. It's no less than that. Like, the way we are together is caught up in this God's salvation. And that's who we are, and that's who we're called to be. This peculiar people brought out to embody the person of Jesus to the watching world 
to live in such a way that our lives make no sense apart from Jesus Christ and his resurrection. I'd like to end with this prayer, if you'd pray with me, from Walter Brueggemann. You call and we have a vocation. You send and we have an identity. You accompany us and we are swept to big purposes. Chosen race, royal priesthood, your own people receiving mercy. But we, in our restlessness, do not want to be so peculiar. We would rather be like the others, eager for their wealth, their wisdom, their power. Eager to be like them, comfortable, beautiful, young, and free. We yearn to be like the others, and you make us odd and peculiar and different. Grant that we may find joy in our baptism, freedom in our obedience, delight in our vocation. The same joy and freedom and delight that you offer to all of us, that so marked our Lord, whom we follow in oddness. Amen.